Well, this is our, our last Sunday in our sermon series, Old Testament Godly. And, and uh, right away, if you're looking in your bulletin and you're looking to find a sermon outline, I've been at camp all this week, and so um, i got a sermon for you. Uh, but I don't have an outline or a PowerPoint this week, so uh, you're just going to have to go good old-fashioned Bible today. And if you want to take notes, take them on the back of your prayer request page. We left that conveniently blank for you. Uh, I want to thank you. Everybody who emailed me and texted me this week, and a couple of you, I ran into you, and, and, uh, and you said, hey, I, I'm working on my memory work, and I want to thank you. That was an encouragement to my soul this week that, uh, that you took up that challenge for 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, and I want you to know that I wasn't asking you to do something that I wasn't doing as well, um, so I'm going to put my, um, my memory verse where my mouth is this morning. So, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter says this, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, stay away from worldly desires which wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live proper lives among your unbelieving neighbors. That even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable lives, and then they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, if you've been working on that, memorizing that, I want to encourage you to keep with it. Put that in your memory bank, and if you haven't, um, go after that, because that's a template for how we can live and how we can thrive in a world that doesn't honor God. That's what God's called us to, and it's timely advice for where we are and where we live now. All right, but that was uh, last week, and I hope that you do take that up, First Peter 2, 11 and 12, but um, I've eventually got to preach a sermon this week, so let's get to that part now. Uh, we spent the last month looking at people in the Old Testament who have done incredible things. And I've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, these have been uh, character studies. We've looked at the lives of some of the men and women of faith in the Old Testament. And today we're going to conclude our series by looking at a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah did an amazing thing for the people of Jerusalem. Anybody know what Nehemiah did for Jerusalem? Anybody know? Nehemiah built a wall, a pretty big one. He built a pretty big one. And uh, that's, that's significant. He, he rebuilt the wall, or the walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. For 92 years, the wall that surrounded Jerusalem had been in ruins, and it's hard to overstate how big of a deal it is that there was no wall for almost a century. A wall's a thing that would protect you from invaders. And maybe it would help if we thought about it this way. Uh, raise your hand if you have an immune system. Very good, very good, very good. Uh, the immune system protects us from invaders like the cold or the flu or, or a million other bacteria, parasites, or viruses. And sure, maybe we still have to deal with the flu from time to time. Uh, we run a fever, we get a headache, uh, maybe we have muscle cramps. But that's as far as it goes because of our immune system. In fact, uh, those symptoms are often signs that our immune system is working in high gear fighting off those foreign invaders. How much worse would the flu be if we didn't have an immune system? 
What do you think? How much worse would the flu be if we didn't have an immune system? Yeah, it'd be deadly. It would kill you. Now, I want you to think about those who are fighting a battle against AIDS. Do you know it's not AIDS that ultimately kills them? It's something like the common cold because they don't have an immune system. Or what about a person who has endured intense radiation treatment for their cancer? The immune system has been irradiated just as the cancer has been, so it's critical that they not be exposed to any pathogens because they're vulnerable. That's it. They're vulnerable. Living in an ancient city with no walls is a lot like living in a body with no immune system. You're vulnerable. It's not a question of if danger will come. It's a matter of when danger will come. And for 92 years, Jerusalem has been without walls. It is a gutted shell of a city. And there's a temple there, but just barely. And the people are living in fear of the day that the invaders will come in and ravage their city. This is the state of Jerusalem in 444 B.C. Now, we've heard about Jerusalem. I want to tell you about a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived in Susa. And in case you're not familiar with geography of the ancient world, uh, Susa is not Jerusalem. Fair enough? Okay. Susa isn't even in the same country. Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah lived in Susa, but he wasn't a Persian. He was a devout Jew. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah had a really good job. I mean, he had a good job. He was cupbearer to the king. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute. This guy's job was to hold a cup. Like, that's all he did? His only, his only skill was to hold a cup? I feel like it doesn't take more than a couple of minutes of on-the-job training to master your profession, right? Raise your hand if you're qualified to be a cupbearer, if you're capable of bearing a cup. Chad didn't raise his hand. <laughs> I was talking about a different Chad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but... I get where you're going. I get what you're thinking. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a very significant job. You're wrong. This was an incredibly important job. Here's why. In the ancient world, people had this unfortunate habit. They had this unfortunate tendency uh, to try and assassinate people. Really bad hobby. But a lot of people did this in the ancient world. And um, one of the primary methods that they would use to try and assassinate people was poison. They'd use poison because... Uh, you know, they didn't have high-powered rifles back then like Lee Harvey Oswald used. Um, so they would have to walk in with a sword. And if you're going into the king's inner chamber, you're not getting very close to the king with a sword. Right? And if you do manage to succeed, you've got about, I don't know, all of three seconds to enjoy the fact that you assassinated the king before the king's guards take you and put you in timeout. Because that's what they would do. Right, So they would use poison because it was a way to surreptitiously slip their hand in to kill the king. And after a few times of this succeeding, the ancient monarchs caught on and they said, it'd be a really good idea if we had people who took a drink of our drink before we do. So that way we'll know if there's any adverse reactions. 
the cupbearer is born. Now, I, I know, I know, you're still going, okay, that's all well and good, but you're telling me that any old Joe Schmo couldn't bear the king's cup, and, and maybe it should just be uh, an average slave. That way, if they die, no big deal. We'll just replace them. Again, you're wrong. It had to be somebody that the king trusted implicitly. Here's why. Because if it was just some average, ordinary slave, an everyday Joe Schmo guy, here's what would happen. Some person who wanted to overthrow the monarchy would come in and say, hey, you're just a slave, and you're not treated very well. You're not very well respected. When I overthrow the government, I will give you untold riches. I will give you a position of prominence. You will be powerful in my new kingdom. All you've got to do is help me kill the king. If you're an average everyday slave and you go home to live your normal everyday life, what are you going to think about that? You're going to say, that sounds like a really good deal. So the cupbearer had to be someone that the king already trusted implicitly. Somebody that the king would already receive sage advice from. The cupbearer to the king was one of the most important positions in the entire kingdom. If we had a cupbearer today, he would travel around, he or she would travel around with a secret service escort at all times. They'd probably be like the people who had the nuclear backpacks. They're never more than 30 seconds away from the president. Nia had a good job. He was highly respected, he was well paid, and he was a man of incredible influence. Things are going pretty well for Nehemiah in Susa. But Nehemiah was also a Jew. So when his brother comes to visit him from Jerusalem, Nehemiah asks with great excitement, he says, hey, tell me about the city. You went on this trip there. How are things in Jerusalem? I want to know all about it. Is it still wonderful? Is it still beautiful? And here's what we read. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. How do you think Nehemiah felt? When he heard this, he was so excited to hear news of beautiful and glorious Jerusalem. He was so excited to hear how his people were prospering in Jerusalem. How do you think he felt when he heard that there was no wall and his people were vulnerable? He writes, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah had the same problem Daniel did. The world he remembered was not the same world he lived in. The world he remembered wasn't the same world he lived in. And just like Daniel, he had a choice. He could spend his time mourning that the past had given way to a future that was somehow different. Or he could begin to figure out how to honor God in the future. And I don't want you to notice, I, I, I don't want you to overlook this. Nehemiah did mourn. 
Nehemiah did mourn. I'm not saying that we have to magically be okay with the absence of a cultural morality. I'm not saying that we automatically just have to be okay with the way things are. And, and it's, it's, I'm not saying that it's not okay to, to miss the past. It's okay to feel sad that the world you grew up in, that the world you raised your children in, the world you've always known, it's okay to be sad that that world is changing. I get it. But the thing we can't do is be crippled by our grief. The thing that we can't do is let our desire for the past cripple our ability to shape a God-honoring future. Nehemiah mourned. He spent days fasting and praying, and eventually, Nehemiah had a plan. Chapter 2. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, and I'd never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled by something. And then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it, is, if it pleased the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long are you going to be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I'd be gone, the king granted my request. So look at this. Nehemiah mourned. That was appropriate. He mourned. He spent days fasting and praying, but eventually Nehemiah came out of that time with a plan. And notice this. It's in this bleak time. It's in this dark time that Nehemiah finds his call. There were plenty of others that sat idly by and wished that Jerusalem were in better shape. But Nehemiah resolved to take action. Too often we spend time speculating whether or not God wants us to do something. We look for specific signs. And the only question that needs to be answered is, does it go against God's commands? Does it go against God's commands? If the answer is no and you see a need, meet it. Do it. We don't have to overthink it here. This is how Nehemiah received his call. There was no burning bush. There was no angel outlining a plan. There was no still, small voice. There was no visit from God. There was a need. There was a need. And there was a man named Nehemiah who decided that he was going to do something about it. I want you to remember something about Nehemiah as we uh, think about him and as we think about his um, plan to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He wasn't a religiously educated man. If he wanted to, he could have said, I don't have, I don't have the right training for this. I don't have the right education. I'm not a priest. I'm not an engineer. I, I, w- I wouldn't even know where to begin. But here's the bottom line. God put something on Nehemiah's heart and he couldn't ignore it. I don't know what God's put on your heart, but I'll tell you this. If it scares you a little, you're probably thinking in the right direction. I don't know what God's going to put on your heart to do for his glory, but if it scares you a little bit, you're probably thinking in the right direction. 
Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Holy Spirit will always be leading us towards God's will. And listen to this. We're always at our best when we follow. We're always at our best when we follow. We're always at our worst when we try and lead. So follow Holy Spirit. I don't know what he's going to put on your heart, but you will. Whatever God's calling you to, lean into it. And you know, there's going to be an excuse. There's always going to be a valid excuse for why we're not the one to do it. It's a good idea, but somebody else should do it. We're not the one. I want you to think about Nehemiah when those excuses pop into your mind. Nehemiah doesn't have the right training. He doesn't have the right education. He doesn't have the right background. He doesn't even live in the right country to do this job. But if God puts something on your heart, don't ignore it. Because maybe, just maybe, he's using you to do something bigger than you could possibly imagine. I want you to take a look at chapter 3 with me. I'm going to read several different verses. Verse 1. This is the result of Nehemiah following God. Then Elishab, the high priest and the other priests, started to rebuild at the sheep gate. Verse 3, the fish gate was built by the sons of Hasanah. Verse 6, the old city gate was repaired by Joida, son of Peesh, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah. Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by the people from Zanawa, led by Hanun. Verse 14, the dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, the later of the Beth Hakarem district. Verse 15, the fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kol Hezeh, the leader of the Mizpah district. Verse 17, next to him worked this man. Verse 19, next to them worked this man. And on and on it goes. Fast forward to chapter 6 and verse 15. Here's what we read. So on October 2, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and they were humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. In 52 days, Nehemiah had inspired the people to build the wall. That's amazing. And it is attributable only to the God of heaven. That's what Nehemiah that's what it looked like when Nehemiah stepped out in faith and followed God. I'm going to be honest with you. When we step out in faith and follow God, it's probably not going to look like that. We're probably not going to see immediate and dramatic results in 52 days. In fact, there's a good probability that we'll go our entire lifetimes and not see the impact that our faithfulness to God will make. But it doesn't make that faithfulness any less real. We're not going to see the impact of things right away. Maybe we won't see it in our lifetime. That's what happened to Edward Kimball. Anybody in here ever heard of Edward Kimball? He's not the, not the furniture guy. Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? Uh, some of you are going, it's right there on the tip of your tongue. Uh, Edward Kimball, and by the way, if you haven't, that's okay. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Detroit and don't get me wrong, I don't have anything against Sunday school teachers. In fact, I love them. We've got a lot of really good ones here. You should come. But um, it's just there's this tendency that Sunday school teachers are rarely famous. You get that? There's not a lot of famous Sunday school teachers out there. Um, but Edward Kimball, 
was a man who was faithful. And there was impacts and ripples of his faithfulness long after his lifetime. I want you to check this out. Uh, in 1854, Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Detroit, and one day God put it on his heart to visit a 17-year-old boy who was in his Sunday school class. He was, he was worried about the young man, and, and the boy had little interest in God or religion. He was pretty rough around the edges, and, and God had put it on Kimball's heart to go to this young man's workplace. He worked at a shoe shop and uh, just talk with him. During his visit with the young man, uh, he led the boy into a relationship with Christ. That young man's name was Dwight L. Moody, who went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the world. He shared the gospel with over a hundred million people, and he founded the Moody Bible Institute and the Moody Church in Chicago. The story doesn't end there, though. Uh, Through Moody's ministry, he was responsible for leading a man named F.B. Meyer to faith in London. Meyer was responsible for leading J. Wilbur Chapman to faith, and Chapman influenced a man named Billy Sunday, another prominent evangelist of the 20th century. Billy Sunday was integral in a man named Mordecai Ham coming to faith, and Mordecai Ham preached a sermon one day that led a young man named Billy Graham to Jesus. Never underestimate the impact you can make by following God where he leads you. Maybe you think what God's calling you to is small. Maybe it's great big. I was reminded of that this past week. I was out at Wonder Valley, and um, actually, that's only partly true, I'm going to be honest with you. I spent the, the day out at Wonder Valley, but I don't have enough faith to spend the night, so I came home and I slept in my bed. Um, and I was out there at Wonder Valley all week, and... And on Thursday night, three of the boys from our camp made the decision to be baptized, and I was so proud of them. I was so proud of these three young men. I was so proud of their dorm dads who baptized them. It was just joyful. And shortly after the baptism service, Leah and I, uh, we headed up to the canteen to get a snack. And I saw all the summer staff sitting in the canteen, and it was, it was hot, and it was late, and they were tired, but they were still giving their best to these kids, just working hard. And it occurred to me, It occurred to me that all the work that they had done all week, cooking meals, sweeping floors, cleaning toilets, taking out trash, all the hard work that they did contributed directly and immediately to three people making Jesus their Lord and Savior. When you leave here, Leave in such a way that you contribute directly to someone coming to faith. Nehemiah lived that way. Edward Kimball lived that way, and my friends at camp are living that way. Let's us live that way too. Ron told us the story of Francis of Assisi, and they went out, and, and they preached the gospel all day. Francis of Assisi was later asked about that, and he said, he summarized it this way. It's a somewhat famous quote now. Maybe you've heard it. Here's what he said. He said, preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. Maybe that's how we need to live our lives. The things that we do every day, let's do them in such a way that people realize there's something different about us, that we have a hope that extends past this world, that extends past our circumstances. 
Let's live in such a way that we contribute directly to people accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I, I know some of you are going, that, that's all well and good. Everything that you just said, Tony, that's really good, that's really inspiring, but I'm, I'm hung up on something. I, I'm, I'm caught up on something that's really bugging me, so I'm going to address that for you. Some of you are going, Tony, you skipped from chapter 3 to the middle of chapter 6. You skipped two whole chapters of Bible. What happened there? I'm, I'm going to just summarize chapters 4 and 5 really quickly for you. I don't want to spend a ton of time there. Chapters 4 and 5, there were ungodly men named Sanballat and Tobiah who opposed, who opposed the rebuilding of the walls. They opposed it. And I'm going to spend a lot of time there except for this. Uh, don't let anybody keep you from the mission of God. Don't let anybody do that. Now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, and then we're going to go back to chapter 6 and finish up. Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we enter an interesting story. Nehemiah has been gone for 12 years, and he's back with the king, and he asked permission. He asked permission to go back to Jerusalem and check on things. And when he gets there, he finds all sorts of sin and ungodliness being permitted in the city. And there's just this really simple lesson from Nehemiah 13. You ready? It doesn't matter what kind of wall you build if what's on the inside is rotten. doesn't matter what kind of wall you build if what's on the inside is rotten. Let's apply that personally. We can be successful beyond measure, but if our foundation is not Christ, it doesn't matter what kind of wall you build. How about we apply that to a church? Church can have the nicest facilities in the entire world, but if the foundation is not Christ, it doesn't matter what kind of walls there are. Let's apply it theologically. You could listen to the best speaker in the entire world, but the foundation, if the foundation isn't Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good the sermon is. It doesn't matter what kind of wall you build if what's on the inside is rotten. All right, I want to wind things up here. Um, 52 days. 52 days is how long it took to complete the walls. And I can almost hear the people that are in Jerusalem saying, man, why, why don't we do that sooner? Why don't we do that sooner? We should have done that a long time ago. It only took 52 days, and that made a big difference. We should have done that a long time ago, Dave. We should have done that a long time ago, Leah. We should have done that a long time ago, Mike. Why don't we do that sooner? Why don't we do that sooner? 52 days is how long it took. Maybe some of you are here today and you've been waiting a long time. Maybe you've been saying, I'll get serious about my faith when I make a few more changes. I'll start going to Sunday school when I learn a little bit more about my faith. I'll get baptized when I clean my act up. I humbly propose that you have it backwards. That's just my opinion, but I humbly propose that you have it backwards. Commit today. Commit today to whatever it is that God's putting on your heart. Maybe it's baptism. <laughs> Commit today. Maybe, maybe it's something else, but I'll tell you this. If you wait until you're good enough, you're always going to be waiting. If you wait till you're good enough, you're always going to be waiting. Because here's the deal about faith in Jesus Christ. It's specifically designed for people who aren't good enough. Specifically designed for people who aren't good enough. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. He says this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
while we were still sinners. That verse says you don't have to wait until you're good enough. It says you wait until right now, until you've heard the message that God loves you and came to redeem you. Each and every person in this room is a sinner. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have chosen our own selfish ways over God's perfect way. And all of us have drowned out God's prompting in our lives. All of us deserve the death that our sin ensures. But because that's true, Jesus died for all of us. Each and every person in this room is a person that Jesus died for. Not because we deserve it, but because without it we would be hopeless. We would be sinners at the hands and in the mercy of a holy God. But because of Jesus, we can be sons and daughters in the presence of our Father God. So I guess if I had to summarize our series, I'd summarize it this way. If we look at the men and women, the Old Testament who had extraordinary faith, Everything we've said over the last five weeks, I'd say this. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God with your life. Trust God to lead you. Trust God when he calls you. Trust God when it's scary. Trust God when it's hard. Trust God that he will forgive you. Trust God that he will forgive you because he absolutely wants to. The God who created you desperately wants to redeem you. And he will, as long as you call in the name of the Lord. So call today. And I suspect that when you do, you'll be like the people of Jerusalem who said, why did we wait so long? If you need to call in the name of the Lord today, why don't you do that as we stand and sing?